From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vegan Indeterminate. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. Our guest today is Marcus Shera. Marcus is a senior in our esteemed department, although he would tell you his real major is in Panda Express. His interests are primarily philosophical, with an emphasis on Smith, Hayek, and William James. He is of Armenian heritage and was inspired to write a paper on the Armenian genocide, using the, uh, partly using the tools in Noel Johnson and Mark Koyama's book, Persecution and Toleration. We'll be discussing that paper today. Thanks so much for being here, Marcus. Thank you for having me, Dominic. All right, so could you first give us a little background on the Armenian Genocide? It's the kind of thing that you might have learned about in school, you might not have. Um, so could you give us a little background on what happened, who the countries involved, and, and, and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the Armenian Genocide is a, a, a major event in uh, 20th century. The 20th century is sometimes called like the century of mass murder right or the century of mass murder by governments to their their own people and so the armenian genocide is maybe the first uh, major example of this so it was uh it took place um between about 1915 and 1917 is is usually the rough time frame that the major events happened and it was during based on the years during world war one right so um it it's estimated between 900,000 and 1.5 million armenians were deported from their homes and sent into the Syrian desert um, just to die. And uh, the purposes, why why this happened, why um, the the Turkish government sent them to do this, what we'll discuss in in the future. But um, because of this, um, the and most Armenians today, uh, many Armenians that you you'll meet in America are the descendants of people who have uh, uh, escaped or they're they're part of the diaspora from the Armenian genocide. Okay, and and this was all in modern day turkey modern day syria almost entirely modern day turkey okay yeah okay and so armenia if you look at it on a map is not in that's not where it is so how did they how did they get over there and it was that a consequence of the genocide well uh modern day armenia is actually where um the historical kingdom of urartu was based okay but and uh, the Armenians are the descendants of the Urartians. The, Ur- 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 the kingdom of Urartu was a um, like a like a major uh, civilization, even that rivaled Babylon. This is something that I've noticed. Armenians are are Christian. They're very proud of their Christian heritage, mm-hmm. but uh, they don't mind letting you know that when they were pagans, they were uh, you know neck and neck <laughs> with the Babylonians. You know, they don't mind mentioning that every once in a while. Right after World War One, after. Um, the, the British were basically uh, figuring out what to do with uh, the former Ottoman Empire. They um, gave a, a, a small section of land to the Armenians, to the Armenian political parties that existed at the time, and uh, that's what modern-day Armenia is. But the capital of Armenia, Yerevan, is the historical capital of the kingdom of Urartu. Okay, okay, very interesting. Yeah, so could you please give us a little bit on your paper? Uh, what 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 If you could kind of sum up the main argument of your paper, and then we'll get into the details. I guess uh, the main argument of the paper is that um, the Armenian genocide, it can be phrased as something called a homogenization technology, right? Okay. So if you have a uh, very large population, right, uh, most nations want to have large populations because you have a much larger tax base. If you're making public goods, the, um, the amount that each person is paying for the, um, the good is, is less, so, so more people are willing to pay. You've got a large population, large tax base, and... Um, but the, the downside of having a large population is you're going to have a lot of different kinds of people. These people aren't always going to get along. Sometimes they're going to have a different religion, different uh, ethnic beliefs, different uh, cultural beliefs, and so on and so forth, right? So it's much harder to rule this population. It's much harder to please the population, right? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's a trade-off here. As, as nations get larger, there's a downward check because of the heterogeneity problem. But um, there's, a, there's an upward check in the sense that the larger nations will be stronger right so how do nations solve this problem right well one solution could be something called a homogenization technology where by some means the government is able to take those varying ideologies and sort of change some change one into another or eliminate all of them and create a new one something like that so um both of those ideas those are based on two 
two papers by um, Alberto Alessina, who I believe is at Harvard or MIT, one of the big Boston schools, mm-hmm. right? And he um, the, he he looked at um, a specific policy that he's calling a homogenization technology um, compulsory education, right? So in um, the, all these different nations that were beginning to democratize in the 19th century, you're, they're going, okay, we're going to have all the people all of a sudden have a voice, right? We kind of want them to have the voice that we want them to have, right? Mm-hmm. So they go, okay, like in Italy, Italy is unifying. It's all these different cultures and nations. And so all of a sudden, if all of them come together, how are they going to, how's the, how is the people of Italy, which isn't exactly one people, how are they all going to agree? Oh, well, we'll just kind of make up a new Italian, right? Mm-hmm. And then we'll say, okay, and by the way, all the kids have to go to school and they have to learn this Italian and they have to pledge to this flag and XYZ and, and ABC and then we're going to have an Italian people, right? The next generation, the next round of people, they're all going to be Italian, right? Or this new Italian. Mm-hmm. And that's how they homogenize the population. That would be an example. So what what I realized, or I, I actually got this advice from a, uh, um, a mentor, Ennio Piano, mm-hmm. right? And he um, he was saying, oh well, this that concept of homogenization technology can apply to the Armenian genocide, right? So the um, the Ottoman Empire is going through um, major changes. They're switching from uh, more of an autocracy to more of a democracy or, or more of a uh, liberal nation. And so all of a sudden, they need the people to agree, or they need the people to already you know be on the government side in various in various ways. So. One very simple way of eliminating a uh, the heterogeneity of a population is to just eliminate one of the groups, mm-hmm. right? So if you've got maybe I'd say like I, I don't know the exact figures on this, but it's something like if there's eighty percent Turks, maybe um, five six percent Armenians, some Kurds, some Greeks. Um, how are you going to solve this problem? Well, we can just ship all the Greeks to Greece, which they did, and then where are we going to ship the Armenians? They don't have a homeland. Well, we're going to have to kill them. Mm-hmm. Right, and this was in the the last days of the Ottoman Empire, correct? Yeah, exactly. So as it was as it was waning, because the Ottoman Empire stretched at, to its greatest extent, it had all of North Africa and most mm-hmm. of the Middle East. Yeah, um, but at this point, it was basically just Turkey, right? Yeah, and I and I, and I don't want to understate that it's just um, Turks versus Armenians or Muslims versus Christians, because it's also true that. Um, other Muslims in different parts of the Ottoman Empire really did not like the fact that they were being controlled by Turks. Mm-hmm. For example, the, the Arabs and other people in North Africa. Yeah. So there, there were similar tensions going on there. But the, the real problem that the Armenians posed to the Turks was that they were right there in the homeland. Mm-hmm. And this was after an upswing in Turkish nationalism, right? Yeah, an upswing in Turkish nationalism. <clears throat> an upswing in Turkish nationalism. But um, we can discuss that a little bit later, exactly what what that Turkish nationalism was and how it was different from other things that came before. Okay, okay. And so how did um, how did Johnson and Koyama's book come into play? They're two professors in our STEAM department, and mm-hmm. uh, it would be good to uh, it'd be good to plug them a little bit here. So how did that come into play uh, with their 2019 book, Persecution and Toleration? Yeah, so uh, last spring, Dr. Uh, Johnson and Dr. Koyama came out with this new book, Persecution and Toleration. And uh, I guess you could say it's in the, in the, the field of uh, economic history or institutional economics, new institutional economics in the spirit of Doug North, mm-hmm. right? And uh, the book is focused on a history of Europe, actually, Western Europe, primar- primarily Western Europe, and um, the development of religious toleration over time from a from a uh, a stage of what they call conditional toleration where only sometimes um, other religions are tolerated so sometimes w- the Jews were allowed to settle sometimes uh, um, you know her- heretical Christian groups were allowed to exist but largely it's the at the whim of those with political power to say this religious group gets to be here this religious group doesn't get to be here which is uh, very different than something that we have today in America and and largely most of Europe and other places around the world, what they call general toleration, where um, the the people with the uh, political power don't get to discriminate against one religious group or another. They have to treat all religious groups the same in some sense, mm-hmm. right? And which it's it's hard to figure out what's a religious group, what's treating the same exactly. But largely, there's a spirit that we want to, from the position of the government, treat uh, everyone the same. And now, what does this have to do? Uh, with the Armenian Genocide. Well, actually, uh, it it gets to a concept that they use um, really interestingly called 
identity rules and general rules, right? And so this is basically the, the toleration issue generalized to all kinds of issues. So um, an, an identity rule is a rule based on something like um, you, you, what some personal characteristic of you, it changes how the rule uh, relates to you, right? So for example, Jim Crow laws in the American South, right? Mm-hmm. If you're black, the, the law treats you one way. If you're white, the law treats you another way, right? Or um, hereditary monarchy. If you're the son of the king, I mean, you're the son of the king, yeah. right? Because of a very specific personal thing that you relate to someone else, you have different uh, legal rights. And, and, something you, and something you can't control. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's something you can't control. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so this would be the opposite of a general rule where it's uh, impersonal. It's, it's strange that the word impersonal gets used. It feels very, like, you know, um, callous to mm-hmm. say, oh, impersonal rules are better. It seems like it's a cold machine. Mm-hmm. But it's actually um, just trying to get the, the reins out of uh, the power of the, the, the reins of power out of the hands of bad men that would discriminate against one another right that mm-hmm. would use their power to discriminate right so um so an example of a general rule would be something like traffic laws right mm-hmm. where i go oh um it's a red light i have to stop and you can't go oh it's a red light i'm the prince yeah i can just bowl bowl right through this this tra- this traffic yeah side, it doesn't right? count it doesn't count presumably now presumably in I- an ideal world that's the way the general rules work sure but every once in a while sometimes the enforcement is a little bit different yeah right so, uh, and some, there's still going to be biases yeah. that are going to show there's up. There's still going to be biases. Mm-hmm. There's still going to be problems like that. But the that, principle yeah. of the rule is that it's general. The principle of the rule. As opposed to general. the principle yeah. of the rule being identity-based. Yeah. So th- this is the idea of um, rules uh, de facto and de jure, right? Mm-hmm. What is the rule in uh, on the books, right? And then how does it actually get enforced on the ground? Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of difference there. Yeah. So how did the Turks use that kind of idea uh, with the Armenians? How, uh, how did they have identity-based rules for Armenians? I mean, they obviously had identity-based rules to decide who they were going to uh, involve in these forced marches and mm-hmm. things like that. But were there other ways that there were identity rules in uh, to to harm the Armenians uh, uh, to benefit the Turks? Well, I guess um, it would be better to describe what most of Ottoman history was like. Most of Ottoman history was almost entirely based on identity rules. Okay. Right? So for, for a long, long, long time... Um, the Turk Ottoman state is a Islamic state, so mm-hmm. they follow their own version of Sharia law, their own interpretation of Sharia law, which um, largely means that you relate to Muslims as Muslims, right? Mm-hmm. You relate to Mus- all Muslims follow the same law, right? So to the extent that you're Muslim, general rules kind of apply, right? So it didn't matter if you were a Turkish Muslim or an Arab Muslim? Yeah, it wouldn't have okay. mattered, right? But um, so in sharia law however there are rules for non-muslims living in uh, a muslim country mm-hmm. and these are um these are called um uh dimmies mm-hmm. they get called a, a so that's that's the title for a, a non-muslim living in a muslim country is a dimmy right and so uh different rules apply to uh how they're going to relate to the state so for example they couldn't hold uh, bureaucratic positions they couldn't hold um uh, many military positions, and they have to pay some extra taxes. But largely, they're allowed to continue practicing their religion as long as they don't get too strong. Mm-hmm. So uh, this this system lasted for hundreds of years, and it was called the millet system. And was that that was conditional toleration? In... Yeah, that, that's what okay. Johnson and Kayama would call conditional toleration, mm-hmm. right? Where the Ottoman authorities, um, as long as you follow these yeah. rules, you can practice your religion. Yeah, but if you don't follow these rules, you can't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's very, I, and I'm not, um, I don't know very much about Sharia law. Um, you might, we, you might want to talk to our friend Yahya Al-Shami sometime. He's, mm-hmm. uh, he's, um, he's really interested in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things that he was explaining to me one time is that the jizya tax, right? The tax on non-Muslims is actually supposed to be, um, compensation or to make it fair to Muslims who do ha- who can get conscripted for military service. Okay. So since you are never worried about your family being conscripted for military service, you know that uh, that you have to pay this tax basically. So the jizya tax is you giving to the military what other families are giving in their sons. Okay. Other Muslim families, which, which is a very interesting interesting kind of compromise. Mm-hmm. So it'd be interesting to see how that rule evolved and changed over time. But sure. um, th- this is the way that. Um, that existed this is the this is the way that the ottoman empire existed for many many years and so there was an armenian millet which millet just means nation actually okay so it's there was almost like an armenian sub nation there was a greek sub nation mm-hmm. um 
Syrian Christians had a subnation and uh, so on and so forth. Because there was yeah. a huge diversity of ethnicities in the Ottoman Empire. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you're going to have that larger territory, you're going to have a lot uh-huh. of ethnicities, yeah, especially so, an area like the Middle East. So they had a lot of things where in order for them to have any kind of legitimate authority, they had to make a lot of compromises, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's definitely going to happen. Okay. And so did the Armenians have, before the genocide happened, did the Armenians, was this conditional toleration thing working out okay for them? And then it turned on them? Or was it always a, a discriminatory and persecution? Well, it, it worked out okay for them, you could say. For, for, a lot of the peri- for a lot of the period that they were under the Ottoman Empire, the um, patriarch of the Armenian Church, so the head of the Armenian Orthodox Church, was almost a, um, I guess, like a, like a steward of the Armenian people. I'm thinking of like the steward of Gondor from Lord of the Rings for some reason. I'm thinking of I'm thinking of Gondorian law for some reason <laughs> in my head right now. But so the 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 patriarch of the Armenian Church is is more or less the leader of the Armenian people when um, in the Armenian millet. But um, so they they had an okay relationship. It wasn't like constant turmoil. That they were treated unfairly by the Ottomans and. Um, and they might have had dreams of their own independence, but it wasn't really constant on their mind. Mm-hmm. What really changed, um, what really was the what something that uh, Johnson and Koyama uh, make sure to say in their book is that the conditional toleration is an equilibrium, right? So it, it feeds back on itself that that identity rules, as long as they're there, they're gonna they're gonna keep um, you know persisting themselves. So the only way for identity rules to switch to general rules is if something happens exogenously from that system. Something mm-hmm. happens from the outside, meaning exogenous, meaning the origin is outside. Yes. Right? So the um, what happened was basically what happened in Johnson and Koyama's book. It's the story of Europe rising over time and becoming uh, more of a general rule state. Along with general rules, for other reasons, comes a lot of economic development. Mm-hmm. So the the states in the West are really strong. They're developing strong militaries. They're developing uh, strong economies. They want to start trading with Turkey. These 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 like European nations. They're going. Europe's kind of small. Mm. You know, Europe's kind of small. I kind of want to get out of here. Yeah. Right. So um, something very interesting happens. Um, and this is this is uh, uh, in some papers by Timur Kuran, mm-hmm. who's a, a who's a who studies uh, the difference between um, Islamic law and uh, Christian law and its effect on on uh, economic practices and his book his biggest book is long divergence yeah uh that's that's number one place you're going to want to go for this Mm -hmm. stuff um but so learn about walks walks yeah you can learn so hard to say word w-a-q-f say that one time at all (laughs) i was gonna say five times fast try saying it one time at all yeah pretty much so um yeah so uh something really interesting that happened was um there's a I, w- I don't know if you'd call it a loophole or just a strange aberration in Islamic law where um, somebody from the outside, right? So somebody from um, Europe, let's say, wants to come over and start trading with people in Turkey, right? So what what they do is they, what they want local knowledge of the area. They want, you know, who wants to buy what, who's selling what. Um, they want local knowledge for who to trade with. So they would actually go to... Um, non-Muslim minorities, and they would sort of switch their citizenship, right? Now, the word, uh, and the word dragoman means translator mm-hmm. in, I think, Turkish. I believe dragoman means translator in Turkish, right? And so basically what would happen is, let's say um, I'm a Russian, right? I'm a Russian trader. I want to come in and start trading in Turkey. So I find an Armenian, and I say, okay, you're going to transfer your citizenship to Russian, even though you've grown up here and you're going to stay here. So you're now going to be a former Turkish or a former Ottoman citizen, now Russian citizen, but you're still going to live in the Ottoman Empire. And you're sort of, it's almost like a trade transfer, right? So, and when, it's, it's, it's almost like a, like a law transfer. So when, when, when this Armenian is now a Russian citizen, now he gets to uh, trade with the Russians without all these problems with translating through law and stuff like that. So it makes uh, the, it's much easier for the Russians to trade in the Ottoman Empire, and it's much easier for non-Muslim minorities in the Ottoman Empire to start um, raising up their wealth and trading. Now they can communicate with the outside world much easier. 
Um, and so what ends up happening is non-Muslim minorities in the Ottoman Empire became really rich really fast. Okay. Right? And this was a this caused a lot of social tensions. Sure, between, I'm sure the yeah. I'm sure the other Ottomans weren't very happy about that. No, they weren't. Yeah. No. And so and and I mean and this just played against all age-old tensions between religion and ethnicity. Um, Jews in the Ottoman Empire became very wealthy as well. And um, yeah. So the, and the, the, so this tension grew and grew and grew and this is one of the things that was sort of rubbing up against the conditional toleration stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, but the other thing is just the military might of the outside world, right? Mm-hmm. So now, from the Ottomans' position, everyone around you is growing, right? Everyone around you is getting wealthier, right? I, I don't. Some of you may know that Turkey was called the sick man of Europe for a while. Yeah, yeah. It's very close to Europe. It, they've got a lot of interaction with Europe, but they were very different, mm-hmm. uh, you know, religiously and uh, economically. And they called the sick man of Europe just because everyone's growing. They're not, right? Mm-hmm. It's like they, they and then hit. you throw World War Two or World War One in on top of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like they're like it's like everyone hit their growth spurt, and then Turkey's like, "What am I doing here, little squirt?" Sure. Yeah. So what the what the Turkish state? Okay. So what the Turkish state has to do is uh, raise their state capacity. Mm-hmm. Now, if you remember back to the Alicina papers that I mentioned before, right? It's very hard to raise your state capacity while having this heterogeneous population, right? So um, something. And can you refresh us on what state capacity means? Oh, right, right. State capacity is kind of like the um, the health of a state and its ability to raise taxes, mm-hmm. or its ability to raise funds, or its ability to effectively um, administer law. Mm-hmm. It's almost like just like it's literally almost like the muscle. Like sure. how much muscle does this state have? Because people don't realize that for most of world history it was very very difficult for states to do those basic things that we just expect Mm -hmm. of them today um so you know we expect a nation state to be able to collect taxes from all its people we expect it to be able to raise an army but for thousands of years that was extremely difficult yeah we 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 like to think of medieval monarchs as sort of these all-powerful beings right because they didn't have a limited government like i mean if you think of a limited government versus an unlimited government which one do you think is going to be bigger probably the unlimited one yeah right but actually especially when especially especially when you're say you have you know the divine right of god to rule and all these other things but really they didn't have as much power as we think they did just because technology wasn't there it was really hard to do anything Mm -hmm. to large amounts of people Mm -hmm. so um because of these things um because the west was rising and Turkey wants to develop state capacity. It, it wants to develop an army mm-hmm. so it can defend itself, right? So um, then they say, hey, let's start to shift in the same direction they have. And this is the period called the Tanzimat period. It lasts from about 1839 to 1876. And um, they start to liberalize. They start to become a more European. And they, they, they put in a constitution that, um, that starts to put checks on the sultan, the constitution of 1876. At this time, the Armenian people developed their own national assembly. They're trying to actually split off. Armenians that had been trading with the West had now learned about nationalism, this new ideology that had grown up in Europe. And they go, hey, let's get, let's get ourselves a piece of that nationalism. You mm-hmm. know? We're Armenian. We can do all this stuff. And so um, interesting, interesting side note. This, might, this isn't really what I talk about in the paper. But in, um, the, a very interesting thing that happening in the Armenian community is Armenian – the Armenian people have been Orthodox Christian for almost 1,500 years at this point, right? Mm-hmm. They, there's almost no other— It's the oldest state church in the world. The oldest state church in the world, mm-hmm. yeah. So the—but um, at this time, oh, all of a sudden, some German evangelical missionaries. Now there's some Armenian Protestants. Huh, we've never seen this before. Oh, the same thing. There's now—all of a sudden, there's some Armenian Catholics. So the Armenian millet itself, that subnation, starts to split up into different groups, hmm. right? So now we have an Armenian Protestant millet. We have an Armenian Orthodox millet, right? We have um, Armenian Catholic millet because if the Armenian millet was controlled by the Orthodox Church, now there's um, different now there's different sub Armenian millets. Mm-hmm. So now all the Armenians, what are they going to unite behind? It can't. It can be religion, but it can't be any specific church, mm-hmm. right? So it's going to be more of an ethnic um, nationalist, like our culture. Our food, our dancing, our music, mm-hmm. um, the land that we live in, and that's a homogenization technology too, right? It, it's 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 almost like a spontaneous homogenization event because mm-hmm. it's not as if, um, I mean, there were some Armenian writers that would write about the Armenian people as an ethnicity beyond the religious identity, mm-hmm. right? But um, the Armenian 
ethnic identity was preserved because of religion. And then when the religion started to fade away, the ethnicity sort of um, established itself as mm-hmm. the uniting thing among all, all Armenians. Now, most Armenians today are still Orthodox. I'd say about 80% even. Mm-hmm. But um, still, this was kind of a tension, so it wasn't going to work entirely. And so, but then, and then they have something like the Armenian um, National Assembly. So they had, the Armenian National Assembly made this document that they called the Constitution of the Armenians, Right, and the Turks had another name for it. They called it the Regulations of the Armenian Millet. Uh-huh. So you can see the identity rules right there, sure. where the people within this community have their own rules. They have their own laws. Um, Jews in Europe was very much like this. They would have Jews would have their own rules within their own communities. But then the people outside are like, yeah, that's just the regulations for the other the minorities. You know? Yeah, we just put them to the side, right? Mm-hmm. And so. Um, this period was growing and, and lasted for a while. In the, during the, this, the Tanzimat period. The Tanzimat yep. period. And during this period, actually, or slightly before, um, the Greek War of Independence happened, and Greece became its own independent nation. So these these splinter groups... Independent became, from... Independent from the Ottoman Empire. Okay. Right? So the Ottoman Empire controlled Greece for many, 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 many years. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, Greece is independent, right? But um, the problem, okay, with the Constitution of 1876 is there's no reason for the sultan to actually care uh-huh. that there's a constitution. Sure. This is a con- another concept from um, new institutional economics called credible commitment, right? Mm-hmm. So if I, um, if I say to uh, Dominic something like, hey, let's, uh, let's go grab lunch, right? Mm-hmm. And then um, I say, like, and I'll pay, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, do I have any credible commitment to that claim? Do I, do, do you, why, why do you think that I'm actually going to do that, right? Yeah. Maybe I'll get you there, and then uh, I, I like, you know, that's like entrapment or something. And all of a sudden, Dominic has to pay 10 bucks for his Pan Express meal, and then and they, he's, he's got no money, so then he's get, he gets arrested and put into Panda prison, uh-huh. right, for not paying for his Panda meal. <laughs> and, you're, right? and you know a lot about the Panda justice system. I know a lot yeah. about the Panda justice system. You majored I, in this. I considered a, a career in uh, uh, PJL, Panda justice law. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, uh, it's tricky. The, the, the Panda Constitution is, is quite a read, I hear. Yeah, um, there's absolutely no credible commitment to that whatsoever. Uh-huh. <laughs> but uh, it's it's my favorite constitution. Deidre McCloskey one time gave a speech. She said, um, "You know, my favorite constitution in the world, the Soviet Constitution. Wow, it is just a wonderful document. It is it's just the Constitution is basically like two lines, just like just everybody love each other. You know? Yep. What a great, what a great constitution. It's amazing. Yeah, and it and it worked out just great, didn't it? It worked out just great. Just now that we're 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 joking around here. Yeah, it's a serious matter. They had absolutely no credible commitment Correct. to the Soviet Union constitution, right? Then an event happens in uh, the 1870s. The Bulgarians begin to revolt, mm-hmm. right? The Bulgarian, uh, the Ottomans were controlling the Bulgarian, uh, what is now Bulgaria. And Bulgaria, just for listeners, Bulgaria is a little bit north of Greece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's next to Romania. It's mm-hmm. uh, in the Balkans. You yeah, say. and so um, the uh, Bulgaria begins to revolt, and then the Sultan Abdul Hamid II, the first villain of our story. Right. He starts to, you know, say, like, what what is this constitution doing here? Mm -hmm. Why can't I just why can't I just, you know, suppress my people? Mm -hmm. You know, why can't I just go and invade? So and so because of this reason, yeah, basically this is this marks the end of the Tanzimat period. And Abdul Hamid is a really um, sort of vicious um, dictator. And he and he is really scared about outside forces, Mm -hmm. right, about European forces colluding with minorities to um, overthrow and partition up the Ottoman Empire, right? One of those foremost minorities being Armenians. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, one of the things that uh, happens is there's there's a period of massacres before the main Armenian genocide. These are usually just called the massacres of 1894 to 1896. Mm-hmm. And um, Abdul Hamid um, sort of, we don't need to go into the details of the historical events, but basically he ends up colluding with uh, Kurdish forces who, because of the the wars, various wars in Bulgaria and stuff, and and other places in the in the north, a lot of Kurds had moved into former Armenian territory, and the Kurds in the east of Turkey, what is now Turkey, were almost treating the Armenians like serfs, almost almost like a feudal system. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Abdul Hamid actually kind of sees this moment as an as an opportunity to uh, get rid of some of the Armenian problem. So they end. Uh, Abdul Hamid uh, sort of colludes with the Kurds, and they're end, they're able to um, to uh, massacre a lot of Armenians in various places. But at this point, Abdul Hamid is still scared of outside forces, right? So he can't really double down and really just 
uh, and massacre as many people as he wants to because he's still scared that the Ru- the Russians are going, hey, what are you doing to those Armenians? Mm-hmm. Or the British are going, hey, what are you doing to those Armenians? You know, it, it's really interesting how the outside um, forces would ally with the specific Armenians of their um, religious heritage. So the Russians would protect Armenian Orthodox, mm-hmm. the French would protect Armenian Catholics, and the British would protect Armenian Protestants. Oh, huh, interesting. So that that the religion is it still still plays in here, even in these diplomatic relations, even with these uh, supposedly secular Western states and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, so, the so these massacres happen, but they're not nowhere near as extensive as the as the later Armenian genocide. But it's it's evidence that the the Turkish government in their position really did not like the fact that there was a powerful minority that could challenge their, you know, homogeneous identity as the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. And just to clarify, a homogenization technology doesn't have to be a genocide. Oh, no, of course yeah. not. Like the example and it doesn't even, earlier of the compulsory Like compulsory education. education. I mean, yeah. it doesn't even have to be a bad thing. It can, right? I mean... Okay, well, give a, I'm curious. What, give an example. Well, I, I, don't think, I don't know. Compulsory education is necessarily a bad thing. Unless you're educating them into some kind of bad thing. Okay, I suppose. Yeah, so, it, I mean, it's a tricky tool. Yeah. It's a very tricky tool, and if somebody says, hey, I'm, I'm thinking of employing a homogenization technology, you really got it. They really got to sell it to you. Okay. You know, there, I, I'm not going it, to, it's not worth ruling out, right? Some, if, if a homogenization technology is something just defined as, oh, something that unites us, mm-hmm. right? Then I guess you can say that it's it's broadly good, but a lot sure. of bad things can unite you. So would would like a national anthem be a homogenization technology, or is that just is that something else? Um, in, in the sense that we want to have a national identity, yeah. But I mean, it's very um, it's it's much weaker, or it's a, it's much a it's a much um, it's more innocent. Okay, almost. So it's, it's not is it like not worth calling that? It's it's hard to tell. Yeah, exactly okay. what a homo- if that would be counted as a homogenization technology. That's sure. interesting. It's the, I mean, it's got nefarious undertones to it because you're thinking of someone at the top who's trying to control someone. Now, the di- the difference between like what happened in Italy and what happens in America mm-hmm. is that in Italy they were like making up a new ethnicity. Sure. Right? In America, they, all that the national anthem is is really just, well, we love America, don't we? Yeah. Think we're free from the British. Yeah. Like. This is very broad things. It's very hard to not identify with as an American of any ethnicity, religion. You're from whether you're from Kansas or you're from Maine, mm-hmm. you know. So it's very hard to disagree with some so such a broad sentiment as, oh, you know, yeah, we're free from the British. But then when you get into more specific things like, I'm a, you're American, therefore you support this specific war, or you must support this specific war, or else you're not a patriot. Then it then it's getting a little bit. It's pushing it a little bit. So it gets it starts to get dangerous pretty quick. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so it's it's playing with fire. Yeah, you you're really playing with fire. All right. Um so what what was it that inspired you to write this paper? You said, I mean, you you you're you're of Armenian heritage. So mm-hmm. so there was so that's a factor that was involved in this, but what was it that really inspired you to write this paper and try to use the tools of new institutional economics? to analyze the Armenian genocide? Um, well, I guess I, uh, I mean, as you said, I, my mother is Armenian, mm-hmm. right? And uh, she's actually from uh, a specific village, or her family is descended from a village, which is, um, she moved here when she was about 17 from Lebanon, okay. right? But um, her, her parents grew up in this village on the mountains of Musada, which is uh, in southern Turkey. It's at the bottom of Turkey, right? And so Musada is a very unique village because they're one of the only villages that almost all of them escaped from the massacres. Oh, okay. During World War One, right? So um, the uh, so th- this I brought this book I brought this book into the studio today. Uh huh. It's called Musada Christians in Need Help or the Banishment of, of show it, Satan. Show it, show it to the microphone so people I'll can see it. I'll show it to the microphone yeah, right here so good. people can see it. <laughs> yeah. So actually what happened, I was interested, I, I had the, there was this book on um, Autobiography of Benjamin Franklin. Okay. I have always wanted to read that. Yeah. I thought it seems like an interesting book. Uh-huh. Ben Franklin's funny guy, interesting guy, important yeah. part of American history. Do you know his, he has an essay on farts? Yeah, he does. Yeah. He's got an essay on everything. He does. He's, he's got like, Very weird guy. I found a website. Benjamin Franklin's Twelve Virtues and like peep these people who like swear by them. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh huh. And I'm from Philadelphia as well, so yeah, I've seen you know his. And all you've got is him and Rocky. 
Well, and and like you know, like <laughs> everything else, <laughs> the Independence Hall, all right, all Liberty right. Bell. But yeah, oh, we got the Phillies, 2008 World Series champions. That's true. That's, that's, that's true. true. Yep. So, um, but so we had a copy of Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm going, um, hey mom, can I just take this back to school? Mm-hmm. And she's like, you can't take Benjamin Franklin's biography until you read. Musada, the banishment of Zaytun and Suedia's revolt. Okay. Right? That was the condition. So I read it and then I went, huh, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. Yeah. Right? Is so, it, so wait, how old were you when this when this was happening? This was last year. Oh, this was last year. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. This was last year. <laughs> so so I read it and then I went and I was in the middle of um uh Dr. Betke's class on um comparative economic systems so just the ideas in that class and 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 the stuff um and i was and persecution and toleration came out at the same time so it's crazy how these these ideas come together yeah where you go huh i'm gonna uh this book come came out i just read this book all of a sudden all the ideas are mixed in my head at the same time and mm-hmm. so i went i went to um dr kayama i told him some of the ideas i told i talked to any piano as well and so they we bounced some ideas around and um dr koyama recommended that i read this book called the 30-year genocide by many, Benny Morris and Drozevi. I'm not sure how to pronounce that name, but um, so sound and, good to me. Yeah, and it's 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 basically like this extensive history of all the events that happened in uh, the Armenian genocide and uh, and the different political parties involved and, and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah, and um, and and, then, and calling it the 30 year genocide, the actual genocide was over. You said earlier from 1915 to 1917, right? Yeah, but so what they're when when they say the thirty year genocide, they're including the massacres of eighteen ninety four to eighteen ninety six. So they're saying it's it's happening over this long period. But even eighteen ninety four goes to nineteen twenty four, right? Sure. So uh, they have a whole another period of the book on um, massacres that the Turks committed against the Armenians after the Armenian genocide, mm-hmm. um, even in um, Ataturkist Russia, mm-hmm. right, or Kamalist Russia, or not Russia, sorry, Turkey, Kamalist Turkey, mm-hmm. right. So and um, and there were a lot of massacres against Greeks at the time too, um, because actually after World War One, the British started to move Greeks back into Turkey, back into Anatolia to kind of dehomogenize dehomogenize Turkey, huh. right? And to try and reverse what um, the genocide had done to to homogenize the population, mm-hmm. right? Well, it looks like we got a guest outside. Oh, do Mr. we, Mister uh, Caleb Pettit from episode two? All right, well, we'll welcome Caleb Pettit into the studio. He was a a character in the past on the second episode of this podcast, um, <laughs> and he's here now. So I'm not entirely sure what to do about this, but we're really <laughs> we're really glad to have him aboard. I, did you hitchhike here? Uh, no, I just ran. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, 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 welcome in. Uh, we're 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 right in here. Uh, we'll, we'll just continue where we were and, sure. and Caleb if you have any questions feel free to feel free to chime in um so well actually could I just say I, I what I want to talk about specifically is um some of the events that led right up to the the genocide because I don't think I've discussed that so much the sure. main the main events of the genocide mm-hmm. so um there after Abdul Hamid was powerful for a really long time after the destruction of the constitution this new political party arose up in in the Ottoman Empire and um they they were called the committee for union and progress union notice that word union is very much like homogenization union and progress Mm -hmm. but and they were um but most people know them today by the name the young turks Mm -hmm. right Um, not the youtube people not the youtube people but the actual political party Mm -hmm. right so um and the young turks were uh, really inspired by a lot of stuff that was happening over in europe a lot of the stuff that like johnson and koyama are talking about where they're going oh we can have a secular state um, that's that's based on a national identity. We don't have to be tied to uh, religious law. We can have secular law, rule of law, but it was going to be based on um, uh, this sort of like national identity. So they go, how can we unite all of? So th- there was a there was a Young Turk uprising, and basically they limit tons of the powers of the the um, Sultan, and he's basically like relegated to a a more um, ceremonial position at this point, similar to like the Queen of England today. Mm-hmm. But the the Young Turks were controlling. Um, Turkey at this point. This is in the early 1900s, very early 1900s, and so, um, but the, and so the 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 Committee for Union Progress or the Young Turks go, okay. So how are we going to unite all the Ottoman people together? What kind of um, unifying identity 
can they all have? And they go, oh, we're all Ottoman citizens. Mm -hmm. Hey, everyone loves being an Ottoman citizen, right? This is something that you say when you're a um, a middle to upper class Turk living in Constantinople. Hell yeah, we all love being Ottoman citizens, right? Mm -hmm. And then they look across the map. Everyone, look, look, the whole map is green in this whole region. That means they're all Ottomans. That means they all love being here. Mm -hmm. So they go, okay, so we're going to have, uh, this is what you can kind of call the Ottomanism phase, where uh, they start to um, pull back on the Sharia law stuff. They go, um, uh, non-Muslims can now join the military. They can have government positions. Uh, like, you know, it's a secular state now. Mm-hmm. And so, but what, what do you love? Why, why are you motivated to do all this stuff? Because you love the Ottoman Empire. Sure. Now, do you think the Armenians love the Ottoman Empire? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not so much after 500 years. And so, the, um, and especially after they almost had their own nation, they almost had the Armenian National Assembly, which Abdul Hamid destroyed mm-hmm. after, after he destroyed the Constitution of 1876. And after he destroyed Bulgaria. And after he destroyed Bulgaria. So you can really trace all of this back to Bulgaria, and it's really all their fault. Now, we don't like to bring that up. Okay. But um, some people would agree with you. We'll, okay. just, we'll just leave it there. We'll sure. Just leave it there. You, you could just leave it there that Bulgaria caused all these problems, right? All right. Right. Okay, but um, so, so, and then our old friend comes back. Who is it? Compulsory education, mm-hmm. right? So then the the Ottoman the the young Turks start to advocate for compulsory education in um, these Ottoman ways or in in Turkish or, or you have to to be to have a government position you have to speak Turkish. So they're trying to create like a new identity where everyone in the Ottoman Empire speaks Turkish. Everyone is just this kind of ottoman person that doesn't really exist it's similar to what we were mentioning earlier about italy they're Mm -hmm. trying to unify all these ethnicities into one ethnicity but um it's really not working out right they they just kind of underestimated how heterogeneous the ottoman empire actually was and it wasn't only um non-muslims that were upset with this it was arabs um also muslim arabs were very upset with um the fact that the Turks all of a sudden think they get to make everyone Turkish, mm-hmm. you know? The Arabic language is really important to the Islamic faith, so making everyone speak Turkish is... is, is there's some uh, religious problems there. So the, the young Turks thought, oh, we can just have everyone love the Ottoman Empire, right? We can just have everyone love being Ottoman, but almost implicitly there, there was this almost, like, uh, subtle... There's no... There was nothing to unify around other than being ethnically Turkish. So they tried to push being ethnically Turkish on everyone, which didn't really work out. And the culmination of this was in the Balkan Wars of 1912. So the Balkan states revolt, and um, Russia backs them up. So there's a smaller war between um, Turkey and Russia through the Balkan states. This is right before the First World War and and before the genocides. Right. So, um, But then, I mean, Armenian soldiers... Are fighting in the military at this point, right? So it's it's uh, they're but they're fighting in the Balkan states, and a lot of the Balkan states end up winning. Hmm. So a lot uh, a large chunk of the Ottoman Empire is lost to other independent states at this point, and this so this is when these these states start to like uh, mix and grow. And if you know anything about World War One, the the confusion that happens in the Balkan states is one of the sort of uh, hotbed of like crossed wires that causes the whole chain of events, chain of diplomatic errors almost that caused world war one mm-hmm. to uh to, to to happen right so but then because of the balkan wars this is basically you know the young turks learning their lesson they go okay ottomanism is not going to work let's just be honest what we're really trying to do here we want everyone to be turkish mm-hmm. right so then because of this they uh kick 100 to 200,000 greeks out of turkey to greece right and 500 to 600,000 this is a big this is an important thing 500 to 600,000 muhashri which is uh, turkish for refugees but they get called muhashri from the balkan states that were muslim are now kicked out of kicked out of the balkan states and they move into turkey hmm. 500 to 600,000 people move in like a span of a couple years that's a lot of people that's a lot of people mm-hmm. right and uh, they 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 don't they don't know exactly where to live and but so the the young turks basically they they blame the balkan wars on abdul hamid they say it was all his fault we kicked him out. We're kicking out all the old Ottoman ways, right? We're Turks, mm-hmm. right? This is who we are. We're Turks, right? And they get pretty blatant about that. And then they – so the, the young Turks switches their ideology because of the economic convenience. Mm-hmm. Because it was so difficult to actually create an Ottoman identity that was um, above any ethnicity, that any ethnicity could participate in, mm-hmm. there was um, 
they ended up with um, just going, okay, we have to we have to all be Turkish now, or we have to all um, promote sort of a Turkish nation state. So there's trade-offs in everything. Yeah. No matter how hard, no matter how hard you you claim to hold on to an ideology like that, if, if the conditions change and it's going to benefit you, you're mm-hmm. going to change it. Yeah, th- this is a big this is a big tension in economic history is the role of ideology, mm-hmm. and exactly is it um, ideology that serves economic interests or more material interests, you could say, or is it uh, material interests that are shaped by your ideology or religion and uh, stuff like that? The, this is um, a, what a lot of Deirdre McCloskey's work is about and tensions between her and the early North and, and stuff like that is about how important are ideas in economic history. All right. And so what do you plan to do with this paper? You didn't write this for class, right? No. Um, yeah, I'm not sure uh, what exactly is going to go down. I, I've got a couple other ideas for research projects, right? Mm-hmm. For other couple other ideas for research projects related to this, where uh, a one would be that period that I mentioned with uh, Kamal Ataturk, the period after World War One, mm-hmm. right? And um, so the the Turkey was switching to a, like a democratic state at that point, right? And so my question is, um, would would Kemal Ataturk's reign have succeeded so well if the genocide had not happened? Now, it's really hard to do something like counterfactual history like that. Yeah. So, But we do have uh, a lot of data, actually, on where Armenians were uh, moved out of their homes during the genocide, right? And so it would be interesting to see what the voting patterns of those districts are or those regions are after the Armenian, um, the Arme- Armenian genocide happened, right? And how which regions supported Ataturk, which regions didn't, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that was a big thing about the Muhashri is, uh, if you remember much earlier in the podcast, we talked about the population is really important. We want a biggest population as possible, but we also want it to be as homogenous as possible, so that people can um, uh, participate or that people can be um, controlled and 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 so on, so on, so forth, right? Um, we want that, but then so genocide doesn't seem like a very good technology. Right, it doesn't seem like a really good policy if that's what you want to maintain a large population yeah. that's homogenous. So this is what the um, Maha- this is the Mahashri's role to play in this, right? When they moved the uh, Armenians out, the Mahashri moved into their homes. This was very explicit in all of their policies. When they said, okay, they said, okay, um, to move, move Armenians out of their homes, and then we're going to move the Balkan refugees into their homes. This was very explicit. And this is actually something that gets brought up in the in the Musada book that I mentioned. So if I, I, I'd really recommend this book if anybody's just interested very basically in what happens in the Armenian genocide. It's I think you can get it for like $7, this book, or something yeah, like it's that. It's pretty short. Yeah, it's a short book. It's like 70 or so pages. And it's written actually by the uh, Armenian evangelical pastor that rescued the village, essentially, mm-hmm. and his story of his experience with the with the Turks in the genocide. All right, Marcus, is there anything, any other interesting stories that you haven't, that you've come across that you haven't mentioned yet that you'd like to? Well, actually, um, I found this uh, interesting tidbit about uh, Henry Morgenthau, who was the American ambassador to Turkey while the genocide was taking place. And ended up being a treasury secretary for Franklin Roosevelt, I believe. Oh, did he? Yeah. I didn't even know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so, and, and he was um, he was Jewish, and so he was familiar with, I, I guess, minority populations that have been you know, oppressed and, and put down. Mm-hmm. So when he was seeing some of the basic policies that um, the the Turks, the young Turks were doing to move Armenians out and deport them, he got, um, he, he was really adamant, like, what are you doing to the Armenians? I don't know if we can, like, you know, maintain good relations with you if you keep doing this, right? And uh, Talat Pasha, who was the young Turk leader who was in charge of the genocide, just goes, like, he'll push it to the side, he'll say, no, it's just relocation efforts, for war reasons, this is one of the this is one of the ways they disguise the genocide. They're going, there's a war going on. Weird stuff's going to happen. Okay, mm-hmm. we've we got to move people around. It's a war. You know, what do you what do you want us to do, right? And then and then but so and then and then Talat goes, hey, by the way, um, there are some uh, life insurance companies in New York, and uh, looks like a lot of uh, Armenian citizens um, actually have. Um, taken out life insurance policies when, with New York. Remember back to the minorities are much more connected with the Western world than the uh, local Turks are, mm-hmm. right, or the local uh, Muslims are. Ali Pasha goes, oh, well, you know, the um, according to these policies, if the um, 
if the claimant on the policy dies and all their next of kin die and basically no one is there to claim the life insurance policy, oh, look, the government gets it. Oh, convenient. How convenient. So this could have been a it's there's there's the only evidence that this happened was that I've found is in Henry Morgenthau's diary. But um, if th this could have been another serious consideration of the Turks, they could have been there could have been a just a very direct pecuniary reason for them to kill many Armenians because they would have collected a lot of money from these life insurance policies. Mm -hmm. So th there's there's a lot of um, interesting back backroom stuff that's going on uh, during the genocide. And um, there, there's a lot of fascinating stuff. Other, if anyone is interested, uh, the best scholars to look at um, for some something like this is, I'd say, m mainly Taner Aksham, who's a Turkish uh, scholar who focuses on the Armenian genocide, and uh, you know his his home country does not really like that he's writing about this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, but uh, it's I, still I, a source yeah. of it's still a source of controversy today in in Turkey and in international relations with Turkey. Oh, Caleb would like to pipe in now. Um, how did the uh, the genocide affect the diplomatic relationships with Turkey and its neighbors at the time? Its neighbors at the time? Mm -hmm. Well, w I guess a really strange thing about World War One is that um, after the war, the Ottoman Empire was basically dissolved, right? That, that was not part of their plan, by the way, to be dissolved. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, so that Britain was splitting up all these different nations. So the, their neighbors after the genocide were not their neighbors before the genocide. And they were a much weaker state at the time, so they almost didn't really have diplomatic relations with them. So I guess it would have been really interesting to see how the former Ottoman citizens would have reacted to the way that they were treating the Armenians. Okay, yeah. And um, so there, there are many nations today that do recognize uh, the Armenian genocide, but uh, America is not one of them for diplomatic reasons with Turkey. But, for example, France, uh, I remember in the Armenian community this was a big news, where they would they said oh and Fr France has formally recognized the genocide, and then everybody goes yay and then and then they say oh and also France has passed a law that if you deny the genocide you get jailed and then we get as Americans <laughs> we went ooh <laughs> that's that's a bit much, but um so yeah it's a, it's it's still it's still an issue of contention today even though um the the, the word genocide was inspired by events like the Holocaust and the Armenian genocide. Uh, Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University in conjunction with the wonderful folks at WGMU. Special thanks to General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash econsociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, and whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan and Determinate.